We we live or is it me? Yeah, there we go. Uh, my name's Sam, if you don't know me. I'm one of the elders, pastors uh, here in the church. And I just thought I would say, because it's always very difficult, but uh, you heard that there's this wonderful home group at Innes Park, uh, the Marsman Home Group. And if you're looking to join a home group on the coast, then James, could you stand up? I saw you over here. Just stand up. This is James over here. So it does help, I think, to see somebody uh, and put a face to the name. So if you're interested in joining that group, come and talk to James directly, uh, and he would love to help you out. They're a group that meets for dinner every Friday night and uh, a wonderful place to meet for home group. All right, last week we looked at the church of Sardis in our Seven Churches of the Revelation series. Uh, And as you know, every week we read the summary uh, from a guy called Kevin DeYoung about the week before, just to refresh it for us. Uh, And so DeYoung said this about Sardis. Sardis was your flashy and successful but shallow megachurch, or your Bible Belt church chock full of nominal Christians. They had a great reputation, but in reality they were spiritually dead. They were the church of whitewashed tombs. To them and to us, Jesus says, wake up. Quite a, quite a solid rebuke. So we are now up to church number six of the seven churches of Revelation this morning. And out of the seven, only two get good report cards. The first was Smyrna, which was your struggling persecuted church in a persecuted area. Very difficult for the church to survive and honour Christ, but they were. This morning we have the church of Philadelphia, which I would label the church, which is not the most exciting of names, is it? But I would call it the church because I believe it's what your average, normal, run-of-the-mill church should be. And I think it's the model for the church that we would like to be here this morning. So as we look at this church from Philadelphia, I hope that you would all listen, pay attention, and I hope it would be the goal for us, so much so that one day if Jesus was to write about us as a church, he could simply write the letter to Philadelphia and tag on their BBC. Uh, That would be my hope, okay? So this is who we want to be together. Now, historically, what we need to know, I always give you a bit of background, Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east. It was an incredibly wealthy city, a very important commercial hub for lots of business, lots of trade, lots of money, and was known for its incredible vineyards. The one big problem with the city is it was known to suffer from major earthquakes, and it was almost leveled in A.D., 17. It had all of the usual Roman and Greek religions, and it is here in that wealthy economic trade hub of the city that the church was flourishing. But to understand that the church was flourishing means you have to understand what a flourishing church is. Okay, so that's what we learned from our letter. So if you have your Bible there, open up to Revelation 3. Uh, And we're going to read 7 through to 13 together this morning. Revelation 3, 7 through to 13. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the True One 
the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close, because you have but little power. But you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to endure. I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. All right, so it begins by stating that Christ is the Holy One, the True One. Now, the Holy One is a familiar Jewish term for God. And so right here, it's an affirmation that Jesus is God, as well as linking that with the True One. All right, so it's saying that Jesus is is God. He is the Messiah to the audience he is writing to. He is true. His words are truth, right? That's the emphasis that he's giving to this church. And it's a wonderful title to a church in a difficult time, who has little power. Jesus is God, and he is true. Depend on Jesus, right? That's the message to the church. Jesus God, Jesus true, depend on Jesus. That's the title. He's then declared to have the key of David. That means he has complete control over the royal household. It means because he has the key, if he opens a door, no one can shut it but Christ. If he shuts the door, no one can open it but Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ has sole authority over the kingdom of heaven. Nobody else can open and shut the door to heaven but Christ. When he opens it, it's open to whoever he chooses. When he shuts it, it's shut to whoever he shuts it. He has the keys. So the church in Philadelphia, to you this morning, Jesus says, I am God, my words are true, and I have the keys to life, be faithful. That's the introduction. I am God, I am true, I have the keys, be faithful. That leads and ties into verse 8. Once we establish that, he goes through to verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. You see, the Christian Jews at Philadelphia were excommunicated from the synagogue. The door to the place of worship they had known was shut off to them. Now, to us, that may not seem like a big deal because 
We're not Jewish and we didn't grow up in this period of time. But you must remember, at that period of time, the synagogue controlled much of your life. Most things to do with the Jewish family, the Jewish relationship, Jewish business, were conducted through the synagogue. And so to put your faith in Jesus meant the door was shut to you to experience God, for you to experience fellowship and relationship, for you to experience community. The door was shut to you entirely, to the family, to the relationships, to the love that you had known. You must remember the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. He had come. They should have been celebrating what the prophets had foretold and longed for. The synagogue should have been rejoicing about Jesus. But rather they excommunicated those who put their faith in the Messiah. Jesus says to them, I open or close the door to eternity, not the people in the synagogue. I decide who is in and who is out. They cannot shut the door of God in your face. Now, he does tie this to their works. In other words, they're not saved by works, but they're not hypocrites. They are focused on Christ. They passionately love and worship him, and it results in good works. Okay, now that's the way it should be. We saved by works? No, we're not. Are we saved to good works? Yes, we are. Unlike Sardis that had works without Christ, this church loves Christ and it has resulted in good works. The right order. The way we want this church to be. We don't want to guilt trip anyone here into serving Jesus. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that, you know, if you sign up on one of those little ministry team sheets at the back, oh, God's going to bless you tenfold. No, no, no. If you love Jesus, then you'll love his bride, the church. Right? If you love Jesus, then you want to be a part of his body. We just keep pointing you at Jesus. That's what we want to do. Okay? That's this church. What a great promise, one of absolute assurance that Christ opens the door and nobody else can shut it, regardless of what they might say. He follows that up with, I know that you have but little power. What that means is this was probably a small church. It hadn't made a massive impact on the city. As yet, they had not released any books. They did not have a TV show. They weren't holding big conferences. They were a small, average church with little power or influence. A church that ran on a shoestring budget. The kind of church that serves up Nescafe Blend 43 and calls it coffee. Right? This is the kind of church we're talking about. A church where the pastor dresses like he walks through an op shop and a monkey throws clothes at him and that's what he wears. Which maybe people have accused me of at times. The kind of church where youth group has dress up as a nerd night and everyone gets excited and turns up dressed up to the max. The kind of church that operates under budget for years and years and Jesus says, well done. I am holding the door open for you. 
because they're the kind of church that is genuine. Their love for Christ is real. And their love for one another is real. They can hang out over a cup of Blend 43 because it's not coffee that binds them. It's the love of Christ that binds them. It is the love of Christ and the unity of the Spirit. In the midst of this wealthy city where everyone was about prestige and everyone was about money and everyone was about how you look, there was this daggy church that was about how you are. And it was faithful and it was strong, even though it was small. I dare say all the churches we looked at in Revelation so far, except for Smyrna, that did not get a good report were probably bigger and more impressive than this one. But Jesus is impressed with them. And he tells us why. And yet, you have kept my word. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world making disciples and teaching them all that I have commanded you. The fullness of God's word. You see, it matters to be faithful to God's word more than it matters to be successful. God is more interested in our faithful patience than our performance. As a church, we are called to teach all that God commands, even the difficult and hard bits, and to live lives of faithful submission to that world word. Not accommodating the world is difficult. To tell young Christians they should not marry a non-Christian they are in love with is tough, but it is God's word. To tell people to forgive who have been greatly hurt is tough, but it is God's word. To not go to a movie that everyone else wants to see because it contains nudity which leads to lust of the eyes is tough. But it is God's word. You see, the temptation, what has happened in the other churches that we have looked at, they have compromised God's word in order to be popular or to attract big numbers. Not hard to get numbers if you water down the message. I recently watched this uh, thing on a video on influence and it, it was kind of hilarious because you might have seen things like this but they did it as a kind of test and they, in the middle of a park, randomly in America, they set up uh, these golden posts and then they had the big red ropes that were strung between them like a queuing section just in the middle of a park uh, and they got a lady there dressed up in kind of a business suit and she had a clipboard and looked very official and they just got one guy to go and stand in the queue. That was it. After about half an hour, there was about 20 people queued up for nothing. She was taking their names down, and they were just queued up. Eventually, the lady with the clipboard said, okay, now that you're all here, it's time to put on the outfits. And they dressed them all up as sheep. Think of the irony of this. And they all got in their sheep costumes, and they're all heading around being sheep, right? People want to be included, don't they? Let me change that. You want to be included, don't you? 
Don't you want to be accepted? Not a trick question. Come on. Yeah, we all do. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be included. We all want to be a part of it. The problem is it can be a trap, can't it? It can be a trap for churches to fall into as well. That we would simply do what is required to make people feel included and accepted, but we would stop honouring the Word of God. If you remember with Jesus, massive crowds were following Him. Huge numbers of people were, were following Christ. And then it says, the Word of God says, He began to teach and say hard things to them, and many stopped following Him. Because Jesus was looking for faithful servants not emotionally needy, experienced chasers. That's not what he's after. He's not after people who want hype. He wants faithful servants. Jesus said tough things to them, and it created a small but faithful community of followers. Okay, this is the kind of church we want to be. And he says, and have not denied my name. This church was small in influence and power, but they honoured God's word and they continued to honour the name of Christ despite persecution. Even when they were kicked out of the synagogue, even when they were removed from a lot of their family and social contacts, they continued to honour the name of Christ. Church, as we, the clamor grows even louder for us to be inclusive of all beliefs and all choices, we must continue to be faithful to stay strong in stating the truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, and we can never yield. No matter how much the world may hate it, it's not open to debate. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. Just quickly, I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 7. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 7. It, just, it says this, you can look it up. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, says Paul. Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. The Apostle Paul went to Corinth and he proclaimed the gospel and people were saved and a church formed. Apollos came along later and he began to disciple and take on the church and Paul says neither of us did a thing because only Christ can give the growth. As a church, I can't make it grow. None of the other elders can make it grow, and none of you can either. We can serve faithfully, joyfully, but only God can give the growth. If there is growth in the church that's not of God, we don't want it. Because that's the growth of Sardis or Pergamon, the growth that doesn't result in the commendation of Christ. It results in unfaithful people. We are a light to this community, I hope. But only God can take that light, lift the veil of unbelief, and bring people into His 
kingdom. Christ holds the key. Christ opens the door. And Christ keeps it open. We must be faithful. Revelation 3.9, just to bring us back to our text. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Now verse 9 takes us straight to the heart of the matter here in the church of Philadelphia, the conflict between the Jews and the church. And Jesus says the Jews there are of the synagogue of Satan. I'm backing that is not a crowd-pleasing statement at a synagogue. Why? Why does it say they claim to be Jews but are not? The Jews believed that being Jewish was national identity. You were born one, and that was that. But it's no longer the case. Romans 2, 28 to 29, For no one is a Jew, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but of God. You see, the new Israel, the new Jew, was the one who came to faith in the Messiah, Jesus, and thus was part of the chosen people. It's not about ethnic boundaries, but about a spiritual reality. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. Those in synagogues who rejected Jesus are not Jews. That's the point of this passage. They are of the synagogue of Satan. Why? Because they've rejected the Messiah. Now, it's the same, I want to say, for us in the church today. You cannot be a Christian because your parents are. You cannot be a Christian because you come to church each week. You are not a Christian because you were baptized. You are a Christian if and only when you submit your life to the Lordship, death and resurrection of Jesus and die and follow Him with everything you've got. That's what makes you a Christian. That and that alone is how you are born again. And then Jesus says to them, they will come and bow at your feet and they will learn I have loved you. You want to upset a synagogue full of Jews? That's probably a good way to say it. Um, You will come and bow at the feet of Gentiles. Well, what he's actually doing is quoting Isaiah 60 verse 14. So, come back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 60, verse 14. You tracking with me, Jerome? You're on top of it? I don't give him any warning, I just like to test his skills. Um, Isaiah 60, 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So the Jews believed that after their exile, the Gentiles would come and bow down at the feet of the people of God. And here, Jesus takes that verse and he says, you ethnic Israel will learn that the people of God are those who put their faith in me and you will bow at their feet. Oof. Jesus is the Messiah. We will all bow at his feet. 
All right, now for a bit of fun, because uh, the next verse, verse 10, can take us into the millennial views, uh, which, you know, is always a great bit of conversation in the church. Uh, you know what, accept what any millennial view you like, just don't get so fixated on it that you forget everything else, okay? This is the problem. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. All right, those who are faithful in keeping the word of Christ did not accommodate the flesh and the world's criticism of the word, but they were patient and faithful. And then we have this sentence, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now, those who hold to a a pre-tribulation rapture are just like, yes, you beauty, this is what it means. Uh, There will be a pre-tribulation rapture and the church will be spared from the trial that is going to come. Uh, And this potentially could mean that in this verse. It could be a pre-trib, pre-millennial verse. In Greek, it's not clear, and I think that is the less likely of the two options. The reason I believe this is when Jesus says, soon, I think it had to mean soon to the hearers of the letter. In other words, if you were one of the seven churches, and it was to be read across the churches, and it said this will happen soon, what would you expect? Soon. Okay, so we don't need to do any linguistic ninjutsu, one day is a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is a day, and that actually means, no, it meant to the original hearers, soon, right? So what do I think? I believe this is referring to AD 70. Why do I think it was AD 70? What happened to AD 70, if you're not familiar, is the Jews in about AD 66 revolted against Rome, uh, and at AD 70, Rome finally said enough is enough and they basically wiped the Jews out of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. It's horrific reading if you ever want to go and do your history. Uh, The bodies and blood of the slain priests were literally flowing down the temple mount. It's brutal. And then they they raised the temple. They they wiped it and all that's left is the the, uh, wailing wall in Jerusalem. They just annihilated. The Jews were removed from Israel from AD 70 until 1948. Okay, so this really ended right there and then the Old Testament era, the Old Covenant. The temple was destroyed, couldn't be practiced anymore. Okay, so that was the end of the age right there and then. Now, the other key thing it did was this. Up until that point, there was only one religious group in the Roman Empire that was allowed to practice religion outside of the Roman Emperor worship, etc. That was the Jews. They were basically so obstinate so unwilling to change that the Romans in the end said, okay, everyone must follow our religion except the Jews. They are just too difficult. The Christians initially were believed to be a part of Judaism and they just ran along with that. They were like, yeah, sure, gives us religious freedom. At AD 70, when the Jews got wiped out, the Christians all went, we're not a part of Judaism. We're actually separate. Don't count us in with that lot. And the Romans said what? Can you think? Okay, you no longer have a license to practice your religion then because you're not Jews. So from that point on, persecution begins. So this is what I think Jesus was talking about. The great trial that was about to come was going to be the fact that Christians were about to lose their ability to practice their religion and all the persecution that would follow. So that's how I understand it. 
But what I do think Jesus is saying, and this is the most important part, whatever your view is, I believe he guarantees here the spiritual protection of the church. The church will always survive its trials. The church will always survive its periods of tribulation. Its martyrs will be glorified because Christ holds the open door and no one can take it from him. Okay, that's the promise. That's the key that we've got to hold to, isn't it? Christ is in control. Verse 11 again, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And three of the other churches we have looked at, Jesus said he would be coming soon and it was not positive. He would come like a thief in the night or, and remove their lampstand. Here it's different though. Christ is saying be faithful because he is coming soon. And as I said, I think that's a reference to AD 70 as the new covenant begins, the new covenant of grace in Christ. We should know that Christ is returning. We should be prepared for his return. I love the old saying somebody once shared with me, live like Christ is coming back tomorrow, plan like he's not coming back for 100 years. Right? In other words, live every day like Christ is coming back, live in a fullness of, of submission to him, but it doesn't mean you can give up on making plans. You've still got to actually think about the future, right? So live like he's coming back today, plan like he's not coming back for 100 years, make plans sense. We need to plan for future ministry and know that Christ may return at any time. This has so much implications for those who have not yet accepted the gospel. Maybe there's someone here this morning. If you're in a room and in the corner there was a bomb that was ticking down to when it explodes and you couldn't see a timer, would you sit there and say, I'm not ready to run yet. I don't feel like I've gotten myself in enough shape. So I'm really just not ready to get out of the room. Maybe sometime later down the track, when I feel like I've got myself together more, maybe when I finish my, my diet, then I'll run. No. There's a bomb in the corner and it's ticking. You're out of that room like you're saying bolt. Right? You're not hanging around to wonder when it might explode. So is the return of Christ. The time could be today. could be in 500 years. You don't know. Now is the time to give your life to him. To know that you are saved. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says if we stay faithful and put God and his word first, we will be a pillar in the temple of God. And that is simply describing the permanence and strength of the position that we have because we are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus, because we are saved by his work and salvation is his gift, then we are like a pillar in the temple. It cannot be taken from us because salvation is of Christ and he guarantees you life with him forevermore. You are a pillar in the temple. The three names, note what it said, three names. God's name means we belong to him. 
The name of the New Jerusalem means that we will have our citizenship in the New Jerusalem. No more national boundaries, but we will have citizenship in heaven. And the name of Christ signifies our special relationship to Him. Isn't that incredible? They're the names that you will have as you come into eternity with Christ. And He promises if you put your faith in Him, the door is open and nothing on earth can close it. Jesus says, if you have an ear, listen. This is important. To us here this morning, are we a perfect church? Nope, thank you, Adele. No, no, we are not. Are there things we can improve on? Yes, yes, there are. But most of all, the call of this passage for this wonderful church is that they are faithful and honouring to the Word of God. First and foremost, keep our gaze on Christ and honour His Word. That's got to be the foundation of what holds us together as a church. Not flashy, not wealthy, not mega, but faithful to Christ. And when I pray in a moment, I'm going to thank God for His church. Maybe this morning you're holding some sour grapes. Maybe you're clinging to, oh, somebody didn't thank me or somebody said something that was hard to me or, or nobody called me when I thought they should call me. Let it go. Keep your eyes on Christ. Love his bride, the church. Have people sinned against you in this place? Probably have. Forgive them. Focus on Christ and move forward. The church is Christ's bride. Let's be honouring to her this morning. The very last comment I'll make is this. This is our month of partnership here in the church. We have partnership instead of membership just because we think partnership better summarises what we're on about. We take it from uh, Philippians 1, 3 to 5, and it basically says, I thank God with every joy and every prayer for you guys because of your partnership in the gospel. And all I want to say to you guys this morning is this, we are trying to be this church, ordinary church who loves Jesus, people who are honest about their faith and their walk. We don't want a TV show, we don't want to have our books out there, we want to be known about being faithful to Christ. If you want to partner with us in faithfulness of Christ, that's what we're on about Sign up to our partnership course, and it just means that we are committed together to the Word of God. Okay, that's what it's on about. I can't make it any clearer than this. If you want a job description of who, oh, sorry, a description of the church we want to be, boom, read that letter. That's what we're trying to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you for your commendation of this church that had little power but was faithful and enduring to your word. Lord, I thank you for 
Bundaberg Bible Church this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to us when we are faithful. Lord, that when we make mistakes, you forgive us by your death and resurrection. Lord, that when individually and corporately we continue to, continue to fall short of your glory, you continue to raise us up. Lord, not only that you bless us, Lord, we see people coming to faith and we see people getting baptized and we see people growing in their walk after Christ. And we acknowledge, Lord, that is of you. So, Lord, we thank you for your commitment to your bride, the church. Lord, we thank you despite our failings, you are building your church. And we just want to praise you and thank you, Lord. Hold us faithful to your word. Lord, we know there are other churches in Bundaberg as well who are equally faithful, equally trying to honour and endure in your word. We pray for them. Lord, strengthen them as well. Encourage them, we pray. Lord, give fruit to your faithful bride, wherever she may be. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.